Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, some people have been emailing us to have you demonstrate what dialectical behavioral therapy is, dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. You are an expert on it. You have been doing it for a long time, and it's a popular mode of therapy that's generally useful, I think, to everybody, as I think you would attest to as well. Yeah, I would. It's often associated with people who suffer from borderline personality because it is particularly helpful for that in a number of different ways. And you've talked about it before on the podcast, but some people are like, well, what exactly does it look like? So today I thought we would have you demonstrate actually what skills training and DBT actually looks like. And we'll have you run through the exercise and the what you do professionally. Sure. And the two of us will kind of be like clients. Yeah. What do you say about that? Sounds good. Absolutely. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob Gettle? I am uh, your friend from graduate school from 100 years ago and um, since, and a DBT skills trainer here in Seattle and also a individual and couple therapist. Yeah. So in the past, I would say if you're looking for a therapist in the Seattle area, you can contact Bob. You can go to his website, bobgettle.com, G-O-E-T-T-L-E. But he's pretty full right now, so um, you could try. Yeah, but, uh, I invite people to call. It's uh, If you call me, I will call you back. He's a popular dude. As some of you who live outside of Seattle will email me and say, I wish Bob lived in my area. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice to hear. So... Um, This episode is just going to be for patrons of the podcast. I apologize for that. Part of the reason is because it's a clinical thing, and I feel like it's in the direction of a clinical training that one might be used to paying for. But also because this might involve the two of us talking a little bit more personally. I'm not quite sure. You might. And I don't know. I just tend not to want like the entire seven and a half billion people population of the planet having access to like those sorts of things. So I I want to limit it to, you know, the number of patrons that we have. So if you want to hear this full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you go there and become a patron of our podcast, you get access to this episode along with hundreds of other patron exclusive episodes. You also know that part of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support Pet Finder, which helps to save pets from being euthanized and connects them with loving families. The Trevor Project and other LGBTQ youth uh, charity organizations. Also a homeless organization here in Seattle. And more recently, we've been giving money to uh, to um, scholarships. And we gave away $2,000, and we're about to give away $2,500 to somebody Wow! just a few months later. And we're about to reach our next goal on Patreon, in which we'll give a $2,000 scholarship check to someone and also a $1,000 check to PetFinder to save animals. So uh, just know that a pretty good portion of your monthly pledge goes towards these charities that we think are worthy organizations. So go to Patreon and become a patron. Do so now. Do it, do it, do it. And uh, it's important to do it actually. Oh, sorry. Did you just do the thing? No, no. Go ahead. It's important to do it before, what, June 1st? Oh, right. (laughs) That's funny. Well, this episode will probably come out after June 1st. Oh, well. So if if this is after June 1st, then you're kind of screwed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Bob. So what can you do for us here in regards to DBT? So you thought, so I asked you, I said, well, why don't you pick one of the exercises that, or modules that is the most quintessential and, and you thought the mindfulness section was quintessential to dbt and and i agree with that yeah so let's let's watch so you gave me do you give this so you gave me a three ring binder Mm -hmm. uh, with all the different handouts and it's sort of like a powerpoint kind of thing yeah and do you give this to your clients absolutely yeah we work out of it so everyone has their own thing here okay so start us off here 
Okay, so just by way of um, preamble, DBT has two parts to it, individual, individual therapy and then this skills training, which often takes place in a class. My involvement with DBT is pretty exclusive to just doing skills training. There are lots of good individual DBT therapists out there. I don't happen to think that I'm one of them. So I teach these skills classes. But it'd be important for people to know that DBT has both components. It's not just skills training. That We're just doing one piece of the thing right now. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Okay. So, um, and obviously, you know, this isn't like a replacement for that kind of thing. Um, so uh, what should we do? Okay, so what you and I talked about doing was looking at mindfulness and um, sort of what it is and maybe one or two of the skills out of the book uh, to help a person practice it. Because it's, it's one thing, I mean, everybody talks about mindfulness. There's a million books about it, but like, what do I actually do that's yeah. mindful? That's maybe the, the thing that we'll talk about today. So in DBT land, they have some jargon. It's actually a therapy with lots of jargon. The jargon is not important. It only helps us organize our practice. Okay. So. So a lot of people will talk about being centered and DBT, the, the term they use is wise mind. It's not my favorite term, but nonetheless, it's the term that they use so that a, a person would seek to get to his, her or their wise mind um, to be their centered self, to act um, based on what is happening in reality, what's really happening, not the things that I think are happening, not the things I tell myself are happening, the things that I want to have happen, but what actually is happening in front of me and inside me and to not um, ignore any part of that. Okay. So I, I think I get that in principle, yeah. and I'm wondering if some listeners might w need to see it in action or something, sure. okay, or so, see some examples, which I'm sure you're getting to. Okay, so so we can agree, you and me, that everybody has the capacity to um, see things as they are, to act from reality, to see the truth. Yeah. Okay, and that sometimes um, we um, have a distorted view of reality. Sometimes we're missing elements of it. We have blind spots. What's an example of that? Um, uh, uh, well, when I was young, uh, when I first met Colleen, one of the things that happened for me coming into that relationship is my previous partner cheated on me. Mm -hmm. And every time I would see a white Subaru station wagon, you know, Outback wagon going down the street at a time when I thought Colleen was at work, it would trigger me into thinking, oh, she's out there cheating on me. Was it her car? No. Did I tell myself it was her car? Fuck yeah. So I would act like that was the truth and my heart rate would go up and I'd have these kind of compelling thoughts about, well, what if she is cheating me? Which on the one hand makes sense. It just doesn't make sense given reality. Reality is she's sitting at her desk doing her job, is working hard like she always does. But I could fall into these sort of like trance, I guess is a way to put it, these states of mind where I would believe... Even knowing that it's not true, I would still find myself believing, oh, maybe she's cheating on me. So, yeah. so it makes sense, and it also has nothing to do with reality. Interesting. Right. Great example. So you, your ex drove a white Subaru. No, Colleen drove a white Subaru. Oh. So I would think, oh, if the white Subaru is out on the road, maybe that means that Colleen is out there somewhere. Oh, she's not at, at work. Yeah. She's, yeah. Not only is she not at work, but... Right. And she's driving around, but she's cheating, cheating. Yeah. and driving by the house. Right. <laughs> and the sight of a car like that would just trigger me. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And yeah, trance-like state, that's an interesting way of putting it. Another way of putting it, I think, is to say that it's like, as you said, at any given time, it's possible that your wife can cheat on you. Yeah. And we all know that. We all know that at any given time that you're not around and your spouse isn't within eyesight, yep. they could be cheating on they you. Could. It's just it's just a, a chance. Mm -hmm. In the same way that it's a chance that someone could break into your house and kill you, yeah. there's a chance. We there's all chance. know that that's not likely, but you know, there, yeah. whatever the percentage chance. And when you would have, when you would see her car, yeah. which I'm guessing... When you were cheated on the first time, did you see your partner's car? Or? No, but I always associate my relationships with the car for some reason. I always have. Okay. Yeah. So it would uh, have this past trauma with your previous partner yeah. emerge. And also the traumas, I'm guessing, from your whole life. Well, yeah. And you would amplify that p probability. Right. Amplify. Great way to put it. From say 0.001% to like 1% or like 90. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I like to say 1% when I explain this, because let's just say 
at any given time that your spouse goes to work, they have a 1% chance of cheating on you. One out of 99. Okay, one out of 100. Got it. Right. So that means they, they're likely to cheat on you three times a year. Right. Yeah. If, you have, if you have that amplified probability. Right. So even though in your mind at the time, if I oh, would have asked you, like, right. what's the chance that Colleen is cheating on you right now? You'd yeah. be like, well, I mean, not very high. Right. But what if... Right. And if this is a chance now, right. uh, surely in our in the next few years it's going to happen, and and then I'm going to be devastated like right. I was in my pre. And I, I don't want that to happen again. It's it's a horrible feeling to have, and so there's this hyper vigilance around that one percent. And it's the same as what if someone you know someone's lying awake at night worrying that they're going to get raped and killed, and then you come up to them and you say like. Um, boo, sorry, no, just joking. You say, how, what's the likelihood that someone's going to do that right now? They'd say like, well, not very high, but yeah. what if, you know, what if that happens? Then my life would be over and I mm-hmm. can't, I, I can't accept even a 1% chance. Okay. So that will interfere with your wise mind or your centeredness. Yeah. So to be wise mind or centered would be to say what in that situation for you? It would be to acknowledge I'm scared right now. My heart rate's up. I'm, I'm afraid. These are the things that I'm telling myself when I see that car. The car is a trigger. I don't choose it to be a trigger, but it is. It's a trigger, and what it's setting off is a cascade of thinking and feeling inside me that's driving me towards amplifying the probability that my wife is cheating on me, amplifying it highly. So that's all that's really happening But in a moment like that, what we tell ourselves is that what we think is the truth and that's compelling. And we don't want to accept this is a horror movie in my head, because when we do that, we drop our guard and we are now vulnerable to we feel vulnerable to the thing that we are so, so afraid of. So in other words, if I trust, that's just the way that my mind thinks I really am safe. I'm okay. I can relax. It's all right. I've just dropped my guard and I've made myself feel more vulnerable to the fact that she could really just trounce me. I've dropped my defense. Now I'm really vulnerable. Is it true? Not really. Do I feel like it's true? Hell yes. So it can be compelling to get into one of these thought cycles because it helps us feel safe. It also, though, keeps the trauma alive. Because it compounds as you imagine in your mind. Right that she's cheating on me, she's right. cheating, or she might cheat on me, she doesn't care about me, she doesn't really love me, I'm, right. not, I'm not secure. All those visuals or you know, probabilities <laughs> just add layers upon layers yeah. of the original trauma, which, right. of course, makes us more vulnerable or more reactive and mm-hmm. more triggered, more likely to be triggered. So that's mindfulness in DBT? Well, that's an example of how emotion mind can carry us away. Yeah. So in DBT, I I probably should back up a half step. In DBT, there's this concept of having a wise mind and ability to see things as they are, truly are, and mean to recognize in this case that right now all that's happening is a fear response. That's my emotion mind. So in DBT, they say you have these three states of mind. They have your reasonable mind, which is your ability to kind of be logical, think things through, plan, so forth. Your emotion mind, which is all your feelings, all your drives, all that energy that gets you to do stuff, laugh at a joke or, or cry or whatever it is. Right. And that a person who's in her or his or their wise mind recognizes both of those happening at the same time and accepts them. So in other words, I can't use my logic to overcome my feeling. I can't say to myself, oh, come on, Bob, that's baloney. You know, she's not cheating on you. She's sitting at her desk. If that worked, that would have worked. Yeah. Right. So but I also don't want to just go with my emotion mind and ignore reason. In fact, which is Colleen ain't my ex. She's my current. And. Um, she's sitting at her desk. So, so I don't want to use emotion to overcome reason. I don't want to use reason to overcome emotion. But wise mind accepts that I have both. Of course I'm scared. Of course I'm scared. How can I not be scared? This is this would trigger a lot of people, right? Yeah. And just because it's triggering doesn't mean that I'm in danger. The facts are the most likely thing happening is that's a popular car color and a popular car, especially in Seattle. A lot of Subarus in Seattle. Yeah. And what's most likely is that's someone else's car. Yeah. Someone else driving wherever they're going has nothing to do with me. I'm just triggered. 
Yeah. Right. So instead of using my logic to overcome my emotion, it's like accepting they're both true at the same time. That's the dialectic. That's why DBT has this business of dialectical behavior. It's dialectical because it, it says, well, there's two sides to the coin here. There's how I feel and there's also what I think. Oh. And wise mind is like, yeah, how I feel makes sense. I'm not going to say, well, I shouldn't feel that way. Come on, what the hell? And I'm also not going to say, well, because I feel that way, it's true. And so therefore have that overwhelm my rational logical mind. I'm going to accept that they're both happening at the same time. That's a dialectic is uh, essentially both and. Yeah. Both and. So there's things I can do to get to my wise mind. A lot of people do yoga. People do meditation. Um, there's some exercises in this book. I thought we'd do one of them um, uh, that are supposed to help a person get to wise mind. And as anybody does any of these exercises, really any exercises, the thing I always think is, if you're going to do one of these practices, let it be a practice and don't have it. Don't try to have a particular outcome. So I should never try to get to my wise mind. What I should do is just do the practice and see what impact it has. Sometimes it may help me get to a wise mind place. Other times, you know, I didn't get to do anything and then, you know, that's fine too. But if I, if I hang my hat on the outcome, then I'm likely to dismiss something that could be helpful to me and also get frustrated because nothing works all the time. Yeah. So you and me, we're going to do a practice right now. Okay. Okay. So, um, what I'd so like... So, I just want to do a caveat before I forget. Sure. Sorry for interrupting. Not at all. Is that this is identical to differentiation, or it's differentiation with, a, I guess, a mindfulness uh, add-on or something in terms of how I'm seeing it. Is no, say more. In terms of Murray Bowen's concept of differentiation, you're not in the family therapy world. You're going to so. have to say this to me. Yeah. Well, I would have thought that you would have been exposed to that, but I suppose m maybe not. Not so much. The idea is that uh, we, as people, have two levels of tension between differentiation and individuation. And we will, uh, given our family of origin experiences, have different levels of fusion between those two sides, between reason and intellect, or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the words that they use in DBT is emotion and logic. Emotion mind and rational mind. Yeah, okay, rational. Mind. It's, it's yeah. exact identical concept. In fact, they might even use those terms at times. Nice. And the idea is, is that as we go through more difficulty early in life with our family of origin, we not only be we not only fuse those two things together so we can't tell the difference between them. Oh. And you know, it's so so some people become overly logical and deny their emotions. Sometimes sometimes you become over emotional and deny any ability to think through and have goal directed activity. Mm -hmm. But they'll also fuse with other people in that they confuse their own emotions for other people, their own thoughts for other people. They'll they'll, they'll confuse other people's thoughts and emotions for their own. Oh yeah. And so uh, the idea with differentiation in Bowen is like to be able to see those two things as separate things. You have your intellect, which yeah. is valuable, right. and you have your emotions, which are valuable, and you have other people's thoughts and emotions, which are nice, and you want to sometimes involve that in your soul, and sometimes you want to have a boundary. And you have your thoughts and emotions, which are also which are not always shared by other people, and that's okay, you know. And share, but don't overshare, you sure. know what I mean. And so there's this there's this you know dialectic, if you will, between yeah. or balance between um, your own intellect and and emotion, and you and other people. The uh, I mean, I'm just. Uh, curious if yeah. you've ever heard someone say, oh, it sounds just like differentiation. No. That's interesting. Yeah. Because in my world, it's like, that's, you're talking exactly, like I teach this stuff right. every quarter, you know what I mean? Right. Um, the difference is that Bowen never had any knowledge, to my knowledge, of mindfulness or yoga or, mm -hmm. you know, anything along those lines. Um, he, uh, was in the 50s and 60s in the United States and, you know, it wasn't really wasn't popular. Thing people then. talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so please continue, Bob. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because when I was, I remember when I was 23, realizing that the voice of my father in my head wasn't actually my dad. That was a hell of a moment. What do you mean? Like, you know how you can hear people that are important to you, you hear their voice in your head? Yeah. Well, the voice of him in my head 
isn't actually him. I was sitting in the office where I was working at the time. My dad was living 300 miles away and I was hearing his voice in my head. And I realized that ain't him. That's, that's me. That's inside me. Like that was just like a hell of a moment to understand. We ain't, I don't, it's not what I hear in my head is not him. Yeah. And what did that mean to you? Uh, I think it was the beginnings of my own differentiation though. Back then I wouldn't have said that. Yeah. Yeah, I just sort of marveled at, oh, that actually isn't him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, interesting. You're right. It's like, uh, just because it seems like it's him doesn't right. make it him. Right. Uh, also, I would imagine uh, some personal power and responsibility around, he's not in my head. Right. That's me doing that. Yeah. And I have more power over me than I do over my dad. Yeah. And let's go down that road of trying to figure out how to change that voice because that's me. Yeah. You know, right. Exactly. I don't know if that makes any sense. But... Well, it makes all the sense in the world. It's just taken me a while. <laughs> <laughs> so you literally heard like, I mean, not in a hallucination, no hallucination sense, but you actually, it was a powerful internalized critical, I'm guessing voice uh, that was in your mind that sounded like him. Yeah. You're just, he was like, ah, piece of shit or what are you doing or whatever it was. Yeah. Whatever said. it was. Yeah. And it, for up until that moment, it just, it was, you would have an argument with him in your head, like, fuck off. Yeah. And it felt like a external argument you were having yeah. was instead of like, oh, there's that internalized voice. Yeah. Yeah. I talk with clients about that all the time. I'm sure you do too, but not in such an explicit way. Mm-hmm. It's more like they clearly identify with those voices. You know, by the time you're 45 or something, you clearly have already, you've, you've in, totally uh, embraced those voices. Yeah. I am a piece of shit. Mm. I don't matter. Yeah. No one loves me. I am lazy. Mm-hmm. I need to be earning more money. I, you know, there's all these voices and they, that they internalize, but they fully embrace and voice themselves. And when we actually in therapy piece through it, we're like, so is that you or is that someone else saying that? Right. And very quickly people will say, well, doesn't, I mean, no, it's not me. I mean, the real me would say, fuck off. Yeah. I, I, money's great, but I don't need to break my back and ruin my life because of it. Yeah. And it's so interesting to ask questions like that. Like, is it you or is it someone else? And instantly people know, but that's that differentiation process. Like, right. oh, Okay. That voice, I'm now going to separate myself from, at least, you know, in this moment. And that's me differentiating between me and other people. I don't have to allow other people's thoughts to dominate who I am. Right. And it's also interesting, just another side note, that you and I have talked a bit about theory and sense of self and psychodynamic and projective identification, now DBT, and also, um, you know, other, other theories like um, what were we just talking about, oh, Bowen, um, they are all the same. <laughs> They're yeah. all talking about the same thing, just in a different way. Yeah. And I think what's great about DBT is that, you know, Bowen never uh, systematized his approach. It was taught in the typical way, which is you teach clinicians how to do it, and then that you just send them off and you supervise them, and you know, the typical way. But mm-hmm. whereas it looks like with the skills training anyway, it's it's I'm, I'm look, you know, yeah. I'm looking you, you at the listener, you can't see it, but there's all these like graphs. There's like reasonable mind, emotion, mind, wise mind, you know, there's all these little uh, worksheets and stuff. And yeah. so, um, and by the way, uh, just want to, you know, mention Marshall Linehan was the developer yeah. researcher for DBT and, uh, she's here in Seattle. She's a local famous psychologist person and, she developed DBT, and I just want to rem- remind Bob that I, I went to UW, which is yeah. where uh, Marshall Linehan developed this and still works as a professor. And She retired on Monday. Oh, she retired on Monday? On Monday, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. Anyways. Um, uh, which just is another reason why UW is better than Penn State. Please. <laughs> Uh, let's take a break. <laughs> let's take a break, and when we get back, let's continue with this. What do you say, Bob? Sure. Oh, wait, we're in the patron zone. We don't have to take a break. There's no ads here. Please continue, Bob. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, you don't so, have a rebuttal for Penn State sucks? 
I don't think I need to say anything about that. That's just you being petty and childish. And I don't have that voice of you in my head saying that, so I don't have to, I don't have to sweat that too much. Well, if I say it enough times, maybe. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay, so, so I have the capacity for wisdom, for knowing the truth, or from DBT point of view, for getting to my wise mind, to getting to a state of mind that's in my wisdom. One of the ways I can do that, and, and one of the things about this book is it's got a lot of just very concrete easy, simple exercises. And that, I think, is uh, its strength, right? So um, you and me, we're going to do one that's in the book here. It's on page five, and it's called, um, oh, no, it's on page four. Um, we're going to breathe wise in and mind out. So what we're going to do together is on the inhale, whenever you, you can breathe at your own pace. You don't have to breathe extra deep, just your own pace. Say the word wise in your mind, and in your exhale, the word mind. So breathe in wise, breathe out mind. Breathe in wise, breathe out mind. And let's just keep doing that. We're going to do that, and we're going to do that quietly, so our listeners will just be doused with silence unless you want to put in some music. Now they can do it, too. Okay, yeah, so you can join along with us and just in wise, out mind. And again, don't try to have an experience. Just let this experience be whatever it's going to be, and that'll be the right thing. How long are we going to do this? Eh, Probably about a minute. Okay, so I will pause it, and you can pause it, too, out there. And uh, do it for about a minute. So I'm going to pause it and write now. Okay, we just did it for a minute. Yep. So in class, what we would do is everybody would have an opportunity, if they wanted to, to say anything about their experience that they wanted. Anything you want to say about yours? It felt good. felt relaxing. Mm-hmm. I could hear my neighbor chopping wood mm-hmm. loudly behind me, but didn't distract me too much. I had random thoughts as I was doing it. One was, I should probably do this more often because yeah. it's probably good for my physiology and psyche. Sure. Um, I thought about how Marsha Linehan might have used this particular technique to market her particular brand of mindfulness because it involves her catchphrase, which yeah. is which is wise mind. Ah, uh, right. Good point. Uh, it, you know, it's just... A thought that a person would have. Just yeah. me being a dick. Um, I also thought that it would be great for people to get in the practice and get in the habit. Sure. And then when they see the Subaru drive by and they realize that they're having a reaction, that they return to this breathing, return to wise mind. And the phrase, because I'm guessing in the class, the, the, the phrase wise mind begins to really develop a meaning for people because people are in the DBT class for like a like how long a year like a year so right away there's probably an introduction of wise mind and sure. so there's this uh, mode that you go into of like okay because it it means much more than than uh, even what you've already explained it yeah. means a lot more in terms of concept conceptualization but also that they've had multiple weeks where they've checked in about wise mind for sure. themselves and so. That it's so it's mindfulness. It's interesting, I guess. Now that I'm realizing this, I, you know, tell me if this is right or wrong. Is that mindfulness is great, but it's also great to have a mindfulness that's very specific to emotional regulation, particularly for people who struggle with being triggered by abandonment, traumas, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yoga is open ended. Meditation can be open ended, but having a very simple strategy can help ground and center us. Right. Yeah. So it's so, a, it's a, cause when they say wise mind, your students, I'm guessing it's not just like, oh, I'm getting centered. It's also like, remember that right. your emotions aren't necessarily accurate. Right. It, remember that you shouldn't get rid of your emotions. Your logic is, is something that we should seek, but right. don't let that dominate. There's this middle ground. Yeah. There's a dialectic between those two. I don't have to figure it out right now. Yeah, I'm, you haven't said that yet, but no, I'm guessing but you introduced that. As, you know, it's like you don't. There, you, you see the Subaru. Yeah, it feels like you have to do something. Like yeah. you have to make plans to divorce. You have to stalk your wife. You have to text her and say, "What the fuck? Where are you?" You know, there's this compulsion to do something, but you don't have to. You know, there's all these. I'm just guessing that yeah. the, the wise mind in and out breathing has a lot of associations in the minds of your students yeah, um, yeah. that that is built up over time. And right. is that kind of a central feature of DBT practice-wise is the 
breathing wise mind? No, it's just one of many. And some people really love it. And other students, they hate it. They just hate it. And it's fine. I don't really get wrapped up in that. Why do they hate it? I don't know. They don't like the words. Um, oh. They don't like jargon. They feel like they're being brainwashed or told to do something. And they don't like being told what to do. And so people will adapt. Whenever I do these in class, people adapt. They're like, well, I didn't want to do that. So I did this other thing. It's like, okay, well, I don't really care. Whatever works. What do they do? Maybe they count. Maybe they use different words. Uh, maybe they instead just focus on their breathing and they don't have a mantra. You know. And so some version of relaxation. Yeah. Well, some version of settle down and get centered, I hope. Yeah. Which might be relaxing. But you could imagine I could do this in a moment of um, panic about the white Subaru Outback going down the street and not feel particularly relaxed, even as I can step back and get a little wiggle room from the compelling feelings and thoughts that I'm having. Like stepping back and recognizing, okay, this is that thing that I feel. And yeah, it's really intense right now. It's really big. It's also that thing that happens to me. They're both true at the same time and not try to like float on a fluffy cloud of relaxation and centered in enlightenment, you know, like that's all bullshit, right? Yeah. Part of being alive is to feel intensely. So I'm not going to duck from it and I'm not going to pretend it doesn't happen. And I can be in my wise mind without feeling calm. In fact, wise mind rarely feels like what we think it'll feel like. We, we tell ourselves a story about, you know, when I'm centered, it's going to look like this. And, you know, lots of times you're centered and it doesn't look like that at all. You have great passion or whatever. Yeah. Cool. For me, I had the similar experience. Lots of thoughts, um, lots of distractions. And, you know, this is what happens. Whenever I teach this, I always model my own experience because there really isn't a right experience. Some people think, oh, I'm supposed to clear my mind. Yeah, I wish. My mind's almost never clear. There's always thoughts. There's always brain doing thinking. That's what brain does. And um, the minute I um, divorce myself from having a particular outcome, like I will now be enlightened, is the minute I actually maybe make room for whatever benefit this thing's going to give me. Because right. I'm not steering the boat. I'm just letting the boat go the way it's going to go. Yeah. And the, I, the additional thing I'll say is that if you're interested in mindfulness, you don't know much about it or yoga or meditation sorts of practices, is that we tend to think of our minds and our emotions as these separate things from our physiology. Right. But they're not. They're physiological experiences. All of our thoughts, our dreams, our emotions are an organ in the brain doing something physical. Yeah. And when we uh, take biological or physical interventions on that system then there's changes in our experience of emotion, our experience of memory, our experience of trauma, our experience of distress, our experience of meaning in life. I mean, just think about that. The meaning of our life exists in the goo of a physical organ of the brain that's similar to like that is, you know, physiologically the same as like a liver or a stomach or something. It's just a bunch of cells. It is. So... Anyway, this is obvious, but I say this to to make maybe another. It's not another. always obvious, though, is it? Yeah, I I mean, I have to remind myself oh, shit, this yeah. because when I'm in a state of stress or distress, I yeah. might not even necessarily know it. No, because it's just sometimes hard to know, mm-hmm. given the way you're raised or something. But even I, it's just hard to know, and so we have to uh, sometimes do a physiological. You know, because like when we're, say, we're stressed out about, well, let's just use your example. You see the white Subaru and you're triggered and you're thinking, okay, uh, well, how do I think myself out of this? Right. Like, what do I have? What, how do, how do I rationalize this away? And that's, that's not a bad technique, but it, it, but how wonderful also would it be if, because your brain is now moving at a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And fear center and memories and traumas and, you know, amygdala and all these things are happening that are not under your control. And how wonderful would it be if you could somehow slow that down so that you actually felt like, you know, only 25% of the full distress and emotion and therefore much less of the paranoia and, and worry. And, and you can do that through mindfulness. You just slow your body down, which slows your brain down, which makes you feel less distressed and you don't have to rationalize anything. You know, you don't have to combat anything. You just, just slow your brain down and then that can do a lot in and of itself. I'm guessing 
uh, there's a lot of benefit to your students in that way too. I should think so. Yeah. Well, you know, 4,000 years of Buddhism. Right. Right. Oh, by the way. Um, yeah, this stuff has its roots in Zen Buddhism. Okay. That's what she is. She's a Zen Buddhist. Okay. Yeah. I know that she has a a bowl that, yeah. she, that she'll she'll ding a singing bowl. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have one too. Okay. Yeah. So what else could you could we do? Okay. So one of the things about people when they're in their wise mind or in their wisdom or centered is that they have a great capacity to observe and acknowledge what's really going on. Okay. So they they're good at seeing what is, and the other thing that they're good at doing is they're good at describing. In other words, labeling with words that which they observe. And finally, what they're good at is participating. In other words, they're good at entering into reality as it is without fighting, without self-consciousness, and without righteous indignation, you know, all the things that get in the way. They might not like it. It's not to say I like it, but I'm not fighting that this is what is. Like, I got diagnosed with an illness. Okay, this is what is. And that's a process a person comes to. But in DBT land, they call that participating in your life or just participating, right? People that are in their wise mind are actually good at all three of those things. Nobody does all three at once or all the time. Nobody does any of this stuff all the time. And you don't need to be in your wise mind all the time, just sometimes when, you, when that's useful for you. But people, that are, people are good at observing, describing, and participating when they're in their wise mind. And one of the things that's great about DBT skills is they are very simple and straightforward. So in the book, the first mindfulness skill is to observe. And I think it's the first mindfulness skill because it is the first skill because I can't do shit with being effective in my world if I'm not noticing what's really going on around me and inside me. And a lot of times we're not. And we're made to believe the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening. Like, like, okay, let's just go for the big kahuna here, like with politics. Like politics is a really divisive area right now. And whatever politician you don't like, you have stories in your mind about who that person is and what makes them tick and all that stuff. And you're, you're made to believe all the stories that you tell yourself about that. But one of the things that you might be missing is this whole internal narrative or this whole internal or recognizing that I'm in a, that I'm in a narrative about, you know, who that person is and whatever. And, um, so observing is an opportunity to kind of slow down and see, well, what's really going on. Well, one thing that's really going on is I'm having a tremendous amount of thoughts and feelings about, ex-politician that's what's really going on yeah and that is really going on well what if someone said what i'm supposed to just accept donald trump the way that he is well supposed to well i i would say maybe not the way you're saying it because when you say accept him the way he is what you're saying is something about you know suck it up i think at least that's what i hear mm. and i think what 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 we have a choice to do though is to accept yeah this is how things are Right. I don't have to like it because how things are part of how things are is I don't like it. Right. But it is indeed how things are and fighting reality, grumbling about reality. You ever hear that one resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other guy dies. Mm. Right. I mean, it's not in my interest to walk around with a bitter heart. So for people suffering with borderline, they're like, so you're you're telling me that I'm supposed to just let it go. You know, I'm just supposed to not fight back when people are treating me unfairly? No, I'm not telling you that at all. Do you ever hear that from people? Um, yeah, I do. I and mean, who could blame anybody for having that thought? Because you're talking about just what, observe, that means be passive? Yeah. No, observe is just the first skill. It's not the most important thing, and it's not where I stop. But if I'm going to be effective in my life, paying attention to what's really going on is in my interest. But it does not mean that I'm going to be passive. It means I'm stepping back for a moment and seeing, well, what's going on? What did the other person say? What did they do? What am I telling myself about that, right? Can I respond to those things exactly as they are? Because what I'm apt to do is go along with the story that goes along with my feelings in the particular moment. Blah, blah, blah. So-and-so is an asshole. Well, you know, that's not really informational, right? I really hate that person. Okay, that's more information. That's more accurate. Right. And it's not bad to hate somebody. It's just a feeling like love and joy and sadness and guilt and shame and so forth. So it's in my interest to pay attention to and observe things exactly as they are, because I'll do better in my life, including work towards social justice. If I don't like the way things are in the political world, if I if I just go around saying, well, you're an asshole, that's not really going to get me or anybody else anywhere. But if I slow down and observe, well, what's really going on? Well, how did we get here? How did we get to elect this person? How, how, how long does it take to get people to do that? Because I have worked 
on without knowing it, I was doing this DBT thing. Oh, of course. From I don't know for a long time with yeah. my clients, right? And I have my own way of describing it, but sure. I find that it is a very difficult step, yeah. particularly for people who have relational traumas, yeah. like narcissistic right. people and borderline people, right. avoidant people. They have these repetitive reactions right. and sometimes repetitive traumas that they've sort of set up in their life due to projective identification and that sort of thing. But anyway, sure. they will have a very repetitive reactivity and what I, the way I describe it is I focus on, you have to have a question mark at least before you do anything. Like yeah. there has to be a question. Is my reaction rational yeah. is, or is my reaction helpful? Like yeah. my very repetitive habitual reaction emotionally and behaviorally to this, there has to be at least a question mark. And, and people will say to me, well, so you're saying that I'm wrong? And I'm like, no, yeah. you could be right, but you have to ask the question. You have to get in a habit of asking a, asking a series of questions or at yeah. least having a question mark right from the start. Otherwise, you're just lost to your right. habits. That's a hard sell to somebody. And one of the good things about DBT is when somebody shows up in my class, it's to learn and practice a skill. And the learning and practicing the skill is independent of the particular moment in which I'm stuck in my narrative. So this is a lot less challenging. So they can practice the skill in class without in the trigger actually being there, and then they yeah. can make that a habit. Right. But I'm just wondering how successful it is for when their clients come in. You know, do you ever have people who are, it's like months later, they're just like, they seem to not actually be slowing down to, yeah. to question. Yeah, we. I, I can say honestly that we don't help everybody that comes to our class. I think the difference between the ones that we help and the ones that we don't are the ones that just, it, people get down the road when they actually just practice the skill that we're learning and let go of, I've got to get my life better. I've got to get this different. I've got to get that different or whatever. I've got to get the cat to stop meowing, right? <laughs> Part of reality right now is the cat's meowing. We could hear it, observe it. Hi, cat. Really meowing. We have a new uh, uh, student in the class. Some people really like the cat, so normally I would make the cat be quiet, but... I like the cat. So I'm picking up the cat, and maybe you can hear her purring. And not purring. Yeah. So, so... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put her down, and she's probably going to continue meowing, but listeners out there just sort of cope It's with one that. of the benefits of being a patron. <laughs> yeah. Please continue, Bob. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. So, so we get to package this stuff as skills to practice, and that might be one of the advantages of DBT is that part of it is, hey, let's take this skills class. We're going to learn these things, and it's independent of any one person's particular issue or whatever. So you get this um, free, I think, freebie where you can say, okay, you can, you, you've got this context to say what's. So what's really happening? Let's practice the skill of observe. We actually get that benefit because we have talked about it as a skill. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to practice my observe skill. Whereas without having the language, like when you uh, recommend your people put a question mark at things, that's a harder sell, I think, in a moment of uh, when emotions are running. That's a harder sell. So it has to be a practice yeah, that you but, develop. But we also get this like... I could always say to my person, okay, so let's practice observe right now. What's really happening? Well, so-and-so said this to me. And then what happened? Okay, and then what happened? Okay, great. And then what did you think? Right, got it. Okay, and how'd you feel? Yep, yep, got it. Okay, and we're gathering information. We're observing and describing. During non-triggered times. During a, during, even during a triggered time, we've got this, um, we've developed this language where we can step back and say, well, all right, let's practice the skill of getting you to a wise mind. What did you actually see? What actually happened? And you do that in class. To some degree. The the good thing about the class is it's curriculum-driven, not person-driven or not issue-driven. So we just work our way through the book. And I think the benefit in individual therapy um, where there's a DBT focus is um, the therapist gets to say, okay, what skill do we want to use here? How about we do blah, 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 blah. And it's not offensive. It's like, oh, okay, we're doing this skill. This is an opportunity to practice the skill because that's going to be helpful to me. Right. If If I'm highly emotional and you say to me, well... It's important to have a question mark. You're you're right, 
of course, you've got a really important point, and I might experience that as invalidating. Whereas if I say, if you say to me, "Hey, um, let's do some observe right now. Let's slow it down and let's do some observe," I've already, you've already got this context to introduce that to me, and I might be more, I might be, I might not always be, but might be more receptive to slowing down and seeing. And, right? Yeah, because yeah. it there's a normalization, yeah, normalization of the emotional process right. and the skill when you're in a classroom and you're watching a teacher who's teaching something and you're watching all these other students right. also go like, huh, okay. Yeah. And then you don't feel alone. Like right. you're the only one that needs to question things. It's yeah. like, this is just a thing that everyone needs to be doing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the benefit of doing this in a class setting as opposed to one-on-one. I've taught it one-on-one. It's kind of dull. I don't think it's as effective because the best teachers are the other students. And it's just so interesting because we tend to think of, you know, skills and therapy as this individual thing, but the power of the group and the power and how social and group oriented we are as humans, we just don't use that enough in our, in our field. You know, we isolate and, um, you know, you and I do mostly one-on-one counseling or couple, couple counseling, right? Yeah. 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 So, I've, just, I've discovered in the last three years, my main job, it's, hey, I got to teach this curriculum. I think that's 45, 45% of what it's important that I do. I think the 55% of what I do, the thing that's most important is that I make the room a place where people feel safe and comfortable to come, sit, learn, be open, be vulnerable, do practice. Um, and that's the thing that gets people down. And in my opinion, that's the thing that gets people down the road. So my understanding of my job has really shifted in the last three years. Yeah. I'm, I'm there to make it safe. Yeah. So I try really hard at that. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you're good at it. I hope so. I hope so. So, so we only have a couple more minutes. Um, what's, I know we've only gotten to like one out of nine points here. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and only like to page five out of, I don't know, like 40 or 30 something. 30 or something. Yeah. So uh, what, how can you wrap this up or summarize the rest of the oh, mindfulness okay. section here? Because well, I, I can't. Well, so everyone understand. There are, five different sections in this book. And so you go through this whole book throughout the whole year. So the yeah. mindfulness is like just one part. It's like it's several months, yeah. I'm guessing of, of activity. Yeah. So it's hard to summarize in this tiny little space. Yeah. But, um, we can't, what else might you say about this? Okay. Well, the main thing is to practice. So observing, uh, the way humans notice what's going on is through their five senses, you know, like what I see, what I hear that's observing. Right. And the way they notice, they can also notice their internal world. And they do that by recognizing what their body feels. So what their sensations are, what their thoughts are, the pictures and images and words and so forth that go through our minds, what their urges are, right. And what their feelings are, you know, like sad or whatever. So I can, I can observe the external world through my five senses. That's the only way I can observe the external world. And I can notice these four elements of the internal world, what I sense, what I think, what my urges are and how I feel stuff S T U F. That's the acronym I use to kind of keep it, keep it um, easy to remember. That's it. That's the only way I can observe everything else is overlay. So like so-and-so is an asshole interpretation. Yeah. It's interpretation. Yeah. What I want to do is get it down to the basics. What I could say is really true. When I say so-and-so is an asshole is, well, I'm certainly having that thought. I'm having the thought they're an asshole. I'm having a feeling about that. Yeah. Probably irritation, anger, annoyance, something like that. Right. And I'm having a response to something I saw. What did I actually see? Well, you know, they cut me off in traffic. Right. Okay. That happened and, and it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Okay. That happened too. Right. So and overlay is they're an asshole. They're privileged. They're entitled. Right. They don't care. Who doesn't do that? Yeah. Of Everybody course. That. Right. And we're made to believe the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. It's in our interest to slow it down and observe. Now, maybe it doesn't matter about the guy who cuts me off in traffic because, you know, that's a, you know, a one event and it's not a big deal. But when I think my partner's an asshole yeah. or my friend is an asshole, now I'm getting wrinkles. Right. Now I'm getting problems because like, I'm going to have to deal with that somehow. Yeah. It's not in my interest to think of my friends as assholes because, A, it sets up barriers. It sets up conflict. It also um, robs me of an opportunity to understand myself or the situation more deeply more effectively um, and get somewhere where I need to get, right? Asshole, name-calling, judging, and the like don't work. Right. They're, they're, they're fun. Yeah. Yeah, they're satisfying. They're in reinforcing. A, in a but sense. they're not effective. Yeah. So, so part of mindfulness is observe, describe, participate. And the part of mindfulness we didn't get to is how to do that. One is to do it non-judgmentally, to practice effectively and one mindfully. 
you and me, we, we would be foolish to try to do justice to all that. Uh, there's a available book if anybody wants to buy it. It's called, uh, uh, what is it called? By Marsha? Yeah. DBT skills training handouts and worksheets. Um, you can get it anywhere. If you buy a copy of that Sparrow Bound, you um, have uh, freedom to get an electronic version from the publisher. You can download it. Yeah. Anyways, um, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it again sometime. Yeah. But yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. The only other thing I'd asterisk to what you're saying, which is which is great, is that yeah, the way I phrase it with clients is we narrativize things. Yeah. You know, you see the uh, white Subaru, you text your, you get a little worried, you text your wife, she doesn't text you back. And we create a narrative, like the narrative that is created due to reactivity and, you know, traumas from the past is she doesn't love me, she doesn't really care, she's never cared. Right. She might even be cheating on me. Right. And that's a story. Yep. And if you hand yourself over to that story, yeah. then you're lost, you're lost to the story. Yep. And there's nothing wrong. It's possible. It's a possible story, but there are other possible stories. And what's the useful story you want to tell yourself every time that happens? Right. Um, there's nothing wrong with saying, I feel distant from my wife. That's right probably now. true if that's the case. Yeah. Or I'm worried that she's going to cheat on me. Yeah, that's um, true. I, I notice I have a shit ton of needs, as other humans do, for sure. attachment and security. Right. That's interesting. That's a story I'm telling myself. Yeah. Um, and if I go to those stories, then it's like, okay, I will take care of myself. I'll try to have other secure relationships. Who can I depend on right now? When my wife gets home, I'll say, so when I texted you, I just want you to know it's not your fault, but because you didn't get back to me for a few hours – and I saw a white Subaru. I had that whole thing again. Right. And uh, I'm, you know, it's not your fault, but it. I was in a really bad s- state. Yeah. And um, and because your spouse loves you, they'll they'll take action the yeah. next time they see your text. They'll they'll wonder. Oh boy, I wonder if he's being triggered by right. the white Subaru. Um, I'm not hung up about it because he's not accusing me of anything. I don't have any resentment around right. this activity you don't have to fight about it yeah it's just yeah. like i'm just going to kick into my empathy and i'm yeah. going to be more likely to respond yeah. more quickly even though i might be busy at work because right. um he's made he's alerted me without resentment and accusation right to his uh pain and i naturally want to stop that pain the problem is in couples therapy and individual therapy as well, I suppose, is that there's so much resentment that builds up over years. Lots be- of story. Between couples sure. a- around these issues. They get calcified uh, stories. That's a good way of putting it, calcified yeah. stories. Have you ever used that before? Nope, just made it up. I like it. And the, uh, you know, you get a text. Isn't It's not just a text. It's like, well... Will he fucking learn that yeah. I have shit right. to do? Right. And, you know, instantly, as soon as, or you not yeah. even see who it is, you just hear the ding <laughs> and you have this right. immediate reaction. Your own story. So it interferes with that right. normal process yeah. of, and I guess this is kind of a plug for learning DBT skills or going to therapy or even couples therapy sure. like early in life. And early in a relationship before these things calcify. Yeah. So anyway, so thanks, Bob, for doing that. That's interesting. I hope all of you patrons uh, enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I think doing other things like this might Maybe might be interesting. Maybe we can even get into some more examples and maybe I'll shut up a little bit more. <laughs> Uh, that does Kirk it for, has a story. <laughs> <laughs> that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there, patrons. Please take care of yourself because you, like Kirk, deserve it.